I want to talk tonight mainly from Romans chapter 8, but it's going to take us a little while to get there. Uh, and uh, essentially, we're going to talk about heaven, the place where God is going to bring good out of bad. And in that regard, the book uh, that Ryan mentioned, If God is Good, also this book, Heaven, in a way, this message takes elements related to the subject of heaven and the new earth, uh, and also uh, the question of God's goodness, and weaves them in together in terms of how we face the suffering of this life. Now, the greatest stories have a powerful beginning and a triumphant ending. And in the middle, there's always a lot of conflict. The middle of the story is where everything goes wrong. I've written uh, seven uh, full-length novels. And you start off the novel, and you establish a character, and they're in a setting, and you usually got some fairly positive framework in which it's starting, and now your job as you tell the story is to make everything fall apart, okay? And so the conflict that we do not enjoy in life is the very conflict we enjoy when we read fiction, when we read a story. Because if you read a story where it starts great, everything continues to go great, ends great, you go, who cares, right? It's the stuff in the middle that makes the story the story. And if my characters had a, were able to vote, they would ask to walk off the pages of the book because of all the stuff that they go through. But what they go through has a purpose, and in the end, there is some redemptive aspect to the story. And if you ever read the, the New York Times um, and look at the book review you'll see that the highest compliment that can be given to any book is to say, this is a redemptive story. Now, these, this may be an atheist or an agnostic writing the review, but they understand that redemption is a good thing. Now, what is the prototype of a redemptive story? Well, we have it right here. It's the gospel. It's the story of God's unfolding drama of redemption. He's the greatest storyteller there has ever been. And one of the questions I ask in the If God is Good book is, say, well, if you were telling the story, how would you have done it differently? What would you have done different, and how would the story have turned out? And would it be gripping? Would it be life-changing? Would it reveal the heart of God? And would we be celebrating for all eternity the greatness of our God who gave himself to us redemptively in Jesus Christ? That is the story of God. Read Ephesians chapter 1. And see that this is what he planned from eternity past. He didn't do anything like this on the fly sort of thing where, oh, everything starts going wrong and God has to now figure out some way to fix it. And he just hope that he can make the best of these bad situations. No, God had a plan from the beginning and he is accomplishing that plan in the world. But going back to what makes the story good... Remember, it's got this great beginning, and it's got this great ending. And in the Bible, the great beginning is Genesis 1 and 2. And the great ending is Revelation 21 and 22, which are like mirror images of each other. You've even got the tree of life there in the last chapters of Revelation, just as you had in the first two chapters. You've got uh, the, uh, the, the, the water and the people that are living there and working and having dominion over the earth, ruling the earth to the glory of God. But in chapter 3, things went terribly wrong. And we, and then in Revelation 20, the third to last, I guess, or second to last chapter of the Bible, so there's 20, there's 21, 22. So 20 is the one where Christ returns and he passes judgment and he makes things right and that new world is new heavens and new earth in which, as it says in 2 Peter, in which righteousness dwells. 
But we live between Genesis 2 and Revelation 20, or really between Genesis 3 and Revelation 20. In other words, that thing that I was talking about called the middle, where all the things happen that go bad, guess where we live? That's where we live. That's where we live our lives. It's not always easy living here uh, in the middle. But the thing to remind ourselves of is that this present era is an exception to the rule. The rule in cosmic history is the uncontested reign of Almighty God. We live in a brief period of exception to the rule. We live in a brief period of rebellion in which angels and human beings, some angels and all human beings, except Jesus Christ himself, have rebelled against God Almighty. But that is a situation called the curse, called the fall, that is going to get fixed. You think about Jesus. What what was Jesus' vocation? What did he he talk about business to the glory of God, which which Wayne is doing such a great job with for us? What was Jesus' vocation? What did he do? Yeah, he's a carpenter. What do carpenters do? They build things, and what else do they do? They fix things. So they make things, they fix things. Jesus Christ, the carpenter from Nazareth, made the world. The world went bad, and he's in the process of fixing the world, and he's going to make all things right. No story is redemptive unless... A bunch of things have gone wrong. And in fact, things have gone wrong. But Ephesians 2, 7 tells us that in the ages to come, God is going to be revealing to us the riches of his grace and his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And the day will come when we will look back and celebrate fully the wonders of the work of God in our lives, and in this world, and then we're going to know the truth of a verse that we're going to get to, Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. When I was writing my book, If God is Good, I interviewed a lot of people who have gone through a lot of suffering. One couple I interviewed were Scott and Janet Willis. In 1994, a large object fell out of a a truck while they were driving in a van on a Milwaukee freeway, and the gas tank of their van exploded. Their six children in the van were all killed in that accident. They had a couple of others that weren't with them on the trip. After the accident... Scott Willis said this in front of the television cameras. He said, The depth of our pain is indescribable, but what gives us our firm foundation for hope are the words of God found in Scripture. Ben, Joe, Sam, Hank, Elizabeth, and Peter are all with Jesus Christ. We know where they are. Our strength rests in God's word. When I interviewed Scott and Janet just, uh, I suppose, just a year and a half ago now, which was 14 years after the accident, Janet said this, I wrote it down word for word, Today I have a far greater understanding of the goodness of God than I did before the accident. At the end of our two-hour conversation, Scott Willis said, I have a stronger view of God's sovereignty than ever before. A greater understanding of God's goodness, a stronger view of God's sovereignty, with six children dead? How is that even possible? Janet told me that she went to the Bible to meet God. She said, I learned about him. He made sense when nothing else made sense. If it weren't for the Lord, I would have lost my sanity. She said, I turned to God for strength because I had no strength. One of the chapters in the book is entitled, Jesus, the only answer bigger than 
the questions. Likewise, I interviewed Daryl Scott, whose daughter Rachel was the first to die in 1999 in the Columbine school shooting. And I said, what can we do as people to prepare for suffering? Because suffering is always coming, maybe in another form, and some of its greatest forms are yet, for many of us, no doubt, still ahead of us. What can we do to prepare? And he said, without hesitation, he said, become a student of God's word. He said, to the degree that I had studied God's word to that degree, and only to that degree, was I prepared uh, to deal with Rachel's death. Now, that doesn't minimize uh, the death of a child. You can't be prepared entirely, of course, for the death of a child. But whatever comes our way, we need to go to God's word to get the kind of perspective that we need. To understand the Christian worldview, we need to go back to the beginning. Think with me back to Genesis chapter 1. God creates everything, and then in verse 31, he looks at all that he has created, and he says, Behold, it was very good. Not just good, it was very good. And God's original plan was that people would rule the earth for their creator's glory. And that's why he said, have dominion over the earth, the animals, all of this. Part of that, by the way, is business, commerce, and in interdependent mutual relationships. This was all God had envisioned. And he made the world so that it could have been people without sin, living in proper relationship with God, in proper relationship with each other. God's plan was that righteous people would rule the earth to his glory. Now, a lot of us make a big mistake because when we read the Bible and we get to Genesis chapter 3, we start thinking, "Uh uh-oh, Satan messed up God's plan. Adam and Eve messed up God's plan. Now, God abandons his plan for righteous people to rule the earth to his glory. And the best he's going to be able to ever pull off is to snatch spirits out of human beings away from the earth to live forever in a heaven that's really a place of a disembodied spirits an angelic realm. So God's original plan that righteous people would rule the earth to his glory has been thwarted, right? Wrong. Jesus Christ came into the world not simply to snatch some souls out of the world, to take to some other place, but to redeem the world itself, to redeem humanity so that we could rule the earth to the glory of God, which is what we will do for all eternity. We, in new bodies, ruling a new earth, reigning with Christ. He's the king of kings. We're the kings with a small K, lowercase k, who rule under him. That is the plan of God, and that is exactly what Scripture teaches. For instance, go to Daniel chapter 7, and I would say you may not even have time to turn there, but I'm just going to read a few verses from there. Daniel 7, speaking of four earthly kingdoms, says this, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, yes, forever and ever. It's saying, well, we got these four earthly kingdoms, but then God's going to send a kingdom, and that kingdom is going to last forever. That kingdom is not going to be far off somewhere. It's going to be where the other four kingdoms were, right on the earth itself. And he is going to uh, rule that kingdom, but he's actually going to have his saints, it says, the, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess that kingdom forever, yes, forever and ever. And then Daniel goes on to speak of a great ruler who wars against the saints and all of this. And then it says, the time came when they possessed the kingdom. Then it says, then the sovereignty, power, and greatness 
of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. They'll be rulers? Really? You, you know, sometimes we look at all these passages that talk about crowns and reigning with Christ. You've been faithful a little, I'll put you over much. You rule over five cities, you rule over ten cities. We act as if those are figures of speech. Because if heaven was really a disembodied spirit realm, and that's where we were living forever, that would make no sense. How are you reigning? How are you ruling? How are you having dominion? There's nothing to have dominion over. There's nothing under your feet. You don't have feet. But that's the view that a lot of people have of heaven. But that's not what the Bible teaches. There's the present heaven when you go where you go when you die, if you know Jesus. It's a great place. Depart and be with Christ is better by far, Paul says. But the saints who are in the presence of God now are anticipating the resurrection. And 1 Corinthians 15 says, if the dead are not raised, we are of all men most to be pitied. The idea of the disembodied spirit realm is a platonic idea. It's a Greek philosophy idea. It's not the biblical idea. So you see in Daniel 7, and I'm just choosing that as, as, as one passage, there are numbers of other passages that teach exactly the same thing. Let me ask you this. What prayer has been prayed more time than any prayer in human history, do you think? Yeah, our Father who art in heaven. And that part of it, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Will that prayer ever be answered? Absolutely. That's the teaching of the Bible. That God is going to bring his kingdom down to earth. Let me read to you a few verses from Revelation 21. The first, skipping around a little bit, but in most of the first four verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And then he sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared uh, like a bride prepared for her husband. And then verse 3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, here it is, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Three times it emphasizes that preposition. With. God will come down to live with his people on the new earth. And then it says, they'll be his people, God will be their God, he will wipe every tear from their eyes, there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. There's a, uh, the chart that you picked up when you came in, hopefully, a one side says, are we past our peaks and what many assume about heaven and what the Bible says about heaven. I'm giving you this so that I don't have to take the time to go through this now so I can talk about some other things from Romans 8. But if you turn to the other side, three eras of earth and mankind, past, present, future, this chart uh, perhaps will, uh, will help you as you try to uh, understand what Scripture teaches in this regard. But I want to emphasize what Revelation 21 is telling us. It's telling us that the ultimate heaven, the place we will dwell with Christ and the people of God for all eternity, is not out there somewhere. It's down here somewhere. Now, how does that work? Wait a minute. Because the whole earth's going to be destroyed. I mean, 2 Peter 3 says that. It's all going to go up in smoke. Right. And our bodies are going to be destroyed. Right, and the promise of the resurrection is new bodies, new earth. God's going to undestroy it all. He's going to bring it back together and raise it up. And what kind of a body is the new body? Well, we know our bodies are going to be like Christ, be like him for we'll see him as he is. And what did Christ say? In Luke 22, he says, look, look at my body. You know, a spirit doesn't, you know, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as I have. It's real. Touch me. 
handle me. And then he ate fish and bread. And when he ate fish and bread, it didn't fall down to the ground. Because he had a real body. It's real, physical, tangible. I remember teaching on this one time in my church. And an old saint, you know, said, well, are you saying that we'll actually have bodies and we'll eat and drink? And we'll actually be on an earth? He said, yeah, and, and that's the doctrine of the resurrection. And one of the comments that he made in our conversation was, it sounds so unspiritual. <laughs> and isn't that interesting? Because there you, you, we've bought in, some of us have bought in to this notion that there's, this, there's the physical world and that's bad. And then there's the spiritual realm and that's good. Well, the spirit... Some beings in the spirit realm are not good. And who made the physical realm? God did. So we have uh, this, this false dichotomy. But here is the promise of God. This is his intention. This is what's going to happen. A resurrected earth. And one way to put it is this. Rather than the eternal heaven being us going up to live with God in his place, the teaching of Revelation 21 is the eternal heaven that we will live in, what is heaven but the very presence of God and where God's throne is, that the eternal heaven we will live in is not us going up to live with God in his place, it's God coming down to live with us in our place. That is the teaching uh, about the new earth. That's Revelation 21.3. That's exactly what it says is going to happen. And doesn't that fit with the eternal incarnation of Christ? You know, Christ didn't become temporarily incarnate and then he shed his body when he went back to heaven. He is forever the God-man and he will reign over the earth, a place suited for him as the God-man over his people for all eternity. Now let's look at verse 16 in Romans chapter 8. With that as a background, and I hope it will create a context in which we can better appreciate what this chapter is saying. In verse 16 it says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Okay, we're God's children. Now verse 17 says, And if we're children then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, what is the point of stressing the fact that we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ? Well, what does the heir do when the father is a king? Well, the heir is a prince or a princess, and their job is to rule over the father's kingdom or to be trained to grow up to rule over the father's kingdom. Have we got those PowerPoint verses there? If we, if we do, let's go with verse 16. If not, just follow along in your Bibles. I'm, I'm using the um, ESV and, and you're using whatever you're using, but uh, it would be nice if we were connected together if we've got those. So the Spirit, what's that? They are behind. Oh, okay, so this isn't where they are. That's where they are. Perfect. Great. Way to be ahead of me, whoever's doing it. Okay, see, in my church, it's just there and it's there. It's, wow, right behind me. Okay. Creeping out. What else is going on back there? People making faces at me and everything. Okay, so the Spirit himself bears witness that we are children of God. We're heirs with God. But notice then that phrase, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Glorified with him. Well, where does the suffering stuff come in? Well, I think where it comes in is how does suffering relate to ruling? What happens when a prince grows up in privilege and gets everything handed to him, or a princess, everything handed to her, 
and is protected from the challenges of life. What kind of character do they have? Well, they become spoiled, self-indulgent, uh, in spirit of entitlement. Exactly not the kind of people who will be servant kings and rulers. So we know on a human plane that when everything goes your way and you don't have to face hardship or adversity, you get whatever you want, you become a very poor ruler. We are told, actually, in Hebrews 5.8, that Jesus learned obedience through his suffering. Now think about that. The perfect God-man, he learned obedience through suffering. You can learn. He could learn through suffering? Well, Scripture makes very clear that we are to learn from suffering. And the life of ease, in fact, is deadly to the development of Christ-like character. It simply isn't going to produce Christ-like character. The only way the king's heir can become a servant king is to suffer. And the truth is this, that the very life of ease we most want to have is the kind of life that would make us the kind of people we least admire. Isn't that true? It is. I mean, just look at everybody you know where things... uh, are handed to them, and everything goes their way, and they have wealth that they didn't have to earn. Uh, it, it, it all came to them, and they're not the kind of people that you want to be led by. They're not the kind of people that you want to be. They're not the kind of people you want your children to be, so don't raise your children that way, because if you do, they will become that kind of person. If everything is always automatic and easy and and, uh, they break a toy and so you always replace the toy that they broke and they do something wrong and there's no consequences and and we think it's love and it's not love. It's it's, it's a form actually of child abuse. But verse 18 says, uh, occasionally I'll say something I didn't plan on saying and I'm wondering if I should have. But anyway, so verse 18, for I consider, and you may be wondering too, so For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. And some translations say in us, and I think actually either works here, but certainly we are going to have a glory revealed to us, and we are going to be part of that glory because the transformation of us as God's children is part of it. When Paul says, I consider, I think he's he's saying, I've given thought to, it's part of my worldview that the sufferings of this present time uh, will benefit, will produce something in the future. 2 Corinthians 4.17 is a great parallel passage where it says uh, these uh, light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. It's not just saying that the present sufferings are going to be replaced by future relief from suffering and comfort for suffering. It's saying that the present afflictions are actually producing. They are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. And so he weighs the present sufferings that weigh this much, and it seems like, wow, they're, they're really heavy on the scales. But then there's the eternal glory over here, and then all of a sudden, the present sufferings go up here. And that's exactly what verse 18 is saying. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. In other words, he looks at the present in light of the promised future. If we understand our past if we have that sense of a a nostalgia for Eden, we were made for a better place than this. This this world as it now is, is not my home. God has made, he's intended something better. And then he specifically promises for the future, this is what's coming. Reigning with Christ on a new earth for all eternity. God wiping away the tears from every eye. A resurrected world. Reunion with loved ones who have died in Christ. God making everything right, wiping away every tear from every eye of his people. You see the present differently 
when you understand the past and in in particular as you look to the future, if you see the future for what it is and for what God has promised it to be, it gives an eternal perspective to live with here and now. So, Romans 8, 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God, that there's a future to the creation. We're going to rule with him. And what we see here is is that God is not just preparing a place for us. He is preparing us for that place. He is doing a work in our character, and he's using our present hardships to do that. Look at verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, when we become what we were made to be, the creation will become what it was meant to be. God will defeat that rebellion. God's plan is not going to be thwarted. There will be no more curse, Revelation 22 promises. And how far will God's redemption reach? Far as the curse is found. What a great, great hymn, Joy to the World, is. Isaac Watts, some of the greatest theology you're ever going to get. Far as the curse is found. That, that's how far he's going to take his blessing. That's how he's going to reverse the curse. Everything that's gone bad, he's going to turn it around. I'm not talking about a universalism now in which everyone is saved. Rather, I am talking about God rescuing his people and rescuing the planet he intended us to rule. And when people say, you know, if God is all good and all powerful, surely he wouldn't have created a world with all this evil and suffering. And the answer to that question is right. He didn't. He created a world without this evil and suffering. He created it with the capacity for that to happen and with a commitment to when it did happen, knowing it would happen, to work it together in some way so that in eternity we will all be able to look back in retrospect and say, yes, yes, look at the wonders of the glory of the grace and kindness of God. What would we have known of God's grace? That's one of his attributes that causes, moves our hearts to praise. What would we have known of the grace of God had we not been sinners living in a sin-stained world. There would have been attributes of God that he still would have had that we never would have known in any real and deep and meaningful way. The grace and kindness and mercy and patience of God. What would we have known of that had we not been sinners living in a world of sin? And so we look at it and we say, well, why did he do it this way? Well, because he knows better than we do. He's God and we're not. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so far my ways above your ways, he says. So verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. This is something that awaits us, that we anticipate, even as a woman anticipates the birth of a child. For we know, verse 22, that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So the pains of childhood. It's always dangerous when a, a man talks about childhood, but I will just say that um, the thing that makes child, childbearing, rather, the thing that makes childbearing 
um, endurable even when it is so painful is the anticipation of what's coming. And so as Jesus says in, in John 16, the woman who has given birth, the grief has turned into joy. The pain has been replaced with a joy that came out of the pain. And this is what Romans 8 is saying in terms of childbirth, that the longing for deliverance that we are currently experiencing that relates to the death pains look backward, whereas the, the birth pains look forward. They anticipate not an end, but a beginning. Well, we can only think that way if we have our theology straight of the new world that awaits the people of God. We need to know what that child is who's coming. It's going to be the people of God redeemed, living on a new earth, serving and praising God and rejoicing for all eternity. So uh, our friend Johnny Erickson Tata writes as she sits in her wheelchair, I still can hardly believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, no feeling from the shoulders down, I will one day have a new body, light, bright, clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope? This gives some, someone spinal cord injured like me or someone who is cerebral palsied, brain injured, or who has multiple sclerosis. Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. No other religion, Johnny says, no other philosophy promises new bodies, new hearts, new minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. Let's look at verse 28. A lot of people look at Romans 8.28 and they wonder, okay, these all things that are being talked about here, well, surely these all things can't include the things that have happened to me. The abuse I experienced in my childhood, they can't uh, include the divorce, they can't include my job loss, loss the, the, the slander, um, the false accusations, they, they can't include the loved one that I lost in that car accident. They can't include uh, dying of cancer. And so our tendency is to look at a passage like Romans 8.28 that says we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, and to think that the all things don't really include all the things that have happened to me. But the reason that the Greek scholars translated all things is that it means all things. And every translation is going to say all things. Occasionally you'll see one that will say everything. But it's inclusive. It's 100% inclusive. So I think Romans 8.28 gives us a great test of whether we believe God. Because... If I take the worst thing that has ever happened to me and ask myself, could God use that and will God use that ultimately for my good? That is synonymous with asking, did God tell the truth in Romans 8.28? So think of the worst thing that has ever happened to you and ask yourself, is it included in the all things that God is going to work together for your good. Provided you love him, you are called according to his purpose. Benjamin Warfield was a, a world-renowned theologian. At age 25, he married Annie Kincaid. On their honeymoon, Annie was struck by lightning. She was permanently paralyzed. And after Warfield cared for her for 39 years, she died in 1915. And because of her extreme needs, B.B. Uh, Warfield uh, seldom left his home for more than two hours at a time during all of his years of marriage. 
Now imagine your marriage beginning like this on your honeymoon. Imagine how it might affect your worldview. Imagine how it might affect your view of Romans 8.28. So what did Benjamin B. Warfield have to say about Romans 8.28? I'm glad you asked that question. The fundamental thought, he said, of this passage is the universal government of God. All that comes to you is under God's controlling hand. The secondary thought is the favor of God to those that love him. If he governs all, then nothing but good can befall those to whom he would do good. Though we are too weak to help ourselves and too blind to ask for what we need and can only groan in unformed longings, he is the author in us of these very longings and he will so govern all things that we shall reap only good from all that befalls us. Only good from all that befalls us? This was not an ivory tower theologian. He knew what it meant to suffer. And speaking of theologians, my favorite theologian is at this conference, Wayne Grudem. And Wayne and Margaret, as I recall, I think it was about five years ago or so, where their daughter-in-law, who had been married to their son only a matter of months, I believe, three months, something like that, was taken in an accident. She was gone. She died. Now, as you look at that on the front end, can you possibly calculate all the good that God is somehow going to bring out of that and how he's going to work that together with everything else to bring good? Well, at the moment, you can't calculate that. You can't figure that out. But is Romans 8.28 still true when that happens? And many of you have had experiences in your life where Terrible things have happened. And God never minimizes those things. Romans 8.28 should never be thrown at somebody who is in the midst of trauma. It's a verse that has great healing properties but has to be taken at the right time and measured and it can't be some simplistic, insensitive answer. Nonetheless, it is actually true, is it not? Now, it's translated different ways. The New American Standard has it, uh, God causes all things to work together for good. Whether you have that in the translation or not, when we're told all things work together for good, it's not that they accidentally work together for good. It's that he is indeed causing them to work. So the meaning is still there of God being at work in those all things. Now notice it doesn't say that each individual thing that happens to us is good. It says he causes all things to work together for good. How is that different? Well, when I was a kid, before my mother made a, a cake, she used to lay out the ingredients on the kitchen counter, and one day I experimented. I couldn't wait, so I sampled each of the ingredients. I, I sampled the baking powder, the baking soda, raw eggs, vanilla extract, bittersweet chocolate. You, know, you get to the chocolate, and you're a kid, and you think, finally, something's going to taste good, and it doesn't. <laughs> Nothing. I mean, other than the sugar itself, and really sugar by itself isn't that great either. But anyway, so you, you're going through all this stuff, and I discover that virtually everything that goes into a chocolate cake tastes terrible by itself. But when my mother, whose knowledge and skill was far greater than mine, mixed the ingredients together in the right way, in the right amounts, and baked them together at just the right temperature, a remarkable transformation took place. Out came a cake, and it tasted delicious. Not the cake as it was in its individual ingredients taken one at a time, but the cake produced under the guidance and the wisdom and skill of someone who knows how to make something really good out of ingredients which by themselves are not necessarily that good or don't appear or taste that good by themselves. 
Isn't that what God on a much higher scale is doing to fulfill Romans 8.28? So look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorified. I mean, that's this thing that's going to happen, glorification, right, in the future. But it's stated as if in the past, and that's how certain it is. God has a plan, and all of these strong words about God's plan must be taken into account in order for us to understand how he could possibly work all things together for good. And what's his purpose? That we might be conformed to the likeness of his Son. God's purpose for our suffering is Christ-likeness. He brings Christ-likeness out of it. That that is our highest calling. Um, you know, we, we could wish that we just, that God would take it all away. We might say to ourselves, you know what, uh, I think it's going to take a hundred years of being in heaven to make up for all the suffering we went through in this life. Well, that's a very pessimistic attitude. But let's say you were right. Okay, hundred years is done. Now eternity is in front of you. So maybe it'll take a second, maybe it'll take a minute, maybe it'll take an hour. I don't know what it's going to take, but I don't think it's going to be very long. And even if it took a few years, it still would be very short because all eternity would be ahead of us. I think our perspective will be transformed a lot faster than that. In verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his only son. How many things can we only see as good in retrospect? Good Friday. Good Friday? Good Friday is the day that the worst thing which ever happened in all human history happened. Correct? Was there anything worse that has ever happened? Anything more horrific and unjust. Never. But we call it Good Friday because of subsequent events and the unfolding of a plan of God. So now we look back and call it good. Was anyone standing around saying, were the apostles standing around saying, boy, hey, this is Good Friday? <laughs> Nobody. What about Joseph when he was sold into slavery? Was he saying, wow. God's intending this for good, for sure, obviously. I mean, my brothers betrayed me. This is a great day. I'll always remember this day. No, but what does he say in Genesis 50, 20? You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good to save many lives. It's in retrospect. It's in perspective. And you know where faith comes in? Faith is when it's Good Friday that doesn't look good. Faith is when you're sold into slavery. That says, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm going to hold on to the promise of God that he will cause all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Let me wrap up in a couple minutes here to say this. Um, sometime, take a sheet of paper and write down on the top of that sheet of paper, I've done this, highly recommend it, the worst things that have ever happened to you. And you say, well, maybe it'll take a few sheets of paper, or I'll write small, or whatever, but whatever, okay, worst things that have happened. Now, on the bottom half of the sheet of paper, write the best things that have ever happened to you. And after you have done this, sit down and do what I did, which is start comparing and if you're like me, and I think you are, you're going to find, if you were thoughtful as you did this, that many of the things on the bottom half of the page came either directly or indirectly out of things on the top half of the page. Just as Joseph's worst thing, God worked ultimately to bring about the best thing, that he would save the lives of his own family and his nation 
through his position in the food that's been stored up in Egypt. In my own life, on the top part of the page, becoming an insulin-dependent diabetic in 1985 and having some physical liabilities and sometimes mental cloudiness that comes as a result of that. And yet, on the bottom of the page, the hum- being humbled and becoming more dependent on God than ever in my life as a result of a disease that God has used in my life. Top part of the page, one of the worst things that ever happened to me, to no longer be a pastor, to be sued, to go to jail for peaceful, nonviolent civil disobedience to intervene for unborn children. It was a terrible, very difficult time in our lives. And then on the bottom of the page, to be able to have the ministry we have, Eternal Perspective Ministries, and to be able to write books, 100% of the royalties of these books, going to support missions work and pro-life work and ministry to handicapped and prison ministry all over the world, millions and millions of dollars by the grace of God. That's down there, okay? So does that belong on the top part of the list or on the bottom part? Well, it belongs both. But ultimately, that's the God who brings good out of bad. And don't you think that sometimes in this life, he gives us just a glimpse of those things. So let me conclude by reading from the last battle, the final book of Narnia, where C.S. Lewis is painting this beautiful, beautiful picture. And he says to the children who do not want to go back to the life they've known, in England because it's so wonderful to be with Aslan and Aslan's country and it's, it's so wonderful. And he says to them, the lion who is Christ, Aslan the lion says, children, there was a real railway accident. Your father and mother are, and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page Now at last they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray.